Hi, this is Chris Pearson. Port Erin resident James Fenton is 101 years old. At the age of 20, he enlisted into the British Army and Bombardier James Fenton was sent as part of 178 Field Regiment of the Royal Artillery as part of the 14th Army, which became known as the Forgotten Army. He was posted to Borneo. The journey itself alone was quite challenging and then he helped fight with the 14th Army until the Japanese surrender. Here he's amazing story as part of Manx Radio's Remembrance 2023 events. I'm a Lancashire man, born uh, actually in church and that's a small town uh, but I wasn't there very long. Um, my parents moved into Oswaldwistle. And uh, that's where I stayed then until I joined the army. You know, all my upbringing and childhood memories, school days, they're all from uh, Oswald Twistle, near, near Blackburn. Between, Oswald Twistle is between Blackburn and Accrington. And of course, if we think of World War One, we think of the Accrington Pals, of course. Yes, because uh, I had an uncle in, in the Accrington Pals, and of course my father... He was in the First World War, but as I say, because of his age, he didn't. He never got into action. He got as far as training, and he was training in North Wales. And then, of course, the war, the First World War ended, which meant that he was lucky enough not to have to go into action. Your own service, you had your primary training or basic training, as it's now called. Tell us about that. Where did where did you do your primary training? I did the primary training in Carlisle. The, the primary training is to get you accustomed to army life, really. Being shouted at. You read the rules and regulations of army life so that you're not to cross them. And uh, it's an initiation. And it lasted six weeks. And during that period, you learn all about the drill, the ranks of the various officers, and uh, the, the do's and don'ts in the army, as it were, and you get really used to army life. After this particular training, then you are assessed. Uh, how it, it came about was that I was just chosen as the army. I, when my call-up papers came, uh, they were uh, assigned to the army, so I didn't have any choice whether I was army, air force or navy. From Carlisle then, after the uh, initial training, it was uh, decided that I would uh, be sent for training with the Royal Artillery as a gunner after the six weeks. And that was way further north from Carlisle up to Edinburgh. So I spent about six months in Edinburgh training as a gunner. But during that period, I did lots of things. I finished up actually uh, recommended as a signaller because I, I learned the Morse code, and which is, of course, people wouldn't understand today because that's long since disappeared. But uh, operating wireless radios and also a telephone exchange. But uh, also, when you get these separate jobs, you could also be a gunner and you have to be able to fire the gun or actually operate with other people, other gunners, on the gun itself. And uh, we were on 25-pounders in uh, Edinburgh. Now, that's a very common gun for the Royal Artillery, a a field gun. The position I got was number three on the gun. 
Number three is the is the chappy that lays has to lay the gun. Now the word laying the gun means that you have to sort it all out, get it level, and you have to position it to actually fire. And when all this is done, you actually pull a rope or, or pull the handle and fire the shell. And that's the uh, operation of number three. But there are six people to the 25-pounder. We went into action, first of all, with these 25-pounders when we moved abroad. But these were taken off us and we suddenly changed and we were given what was called, or classified by many people, as a screw gun. And the screw gun is the one, it's a mountain gun, it's the smallest field gun on the artillery. But it takes more men, because it can be pulled to pieces and carried. Each man can, one man can carry one wheel, one another, and the barrel itself comes into two pieces, it unscrews. And that's why they called it the screw gun. In fact, if you like to look up Kipling's poetic history, you find that he has written a poem about the screw gun. Oh, for you all love the screw guns. The screw guns, they all love you. And when we come around with a few guns, know you know what to do. Just send in that chief and surrender. It's worse if you fight or you run. You may hide in the caves, they'll be only your graves, but you can't get away from our guns. So I guess that's a bit like we used to see the field gun race happening as part of the Royal Tournament with the gun being stripped down, taken across fences, reassembled. It was that kind of thing, was it? That, that was the case, yes, but fortunately, I never saw it stripped down. We went into action with it. It was... I think it it was stripped down when they flew, they were flown into Burma, because that was the only way they could get the guns into Burma. I uh, I wasn't actually working on the gun then. I was more operating as a signaller. Therefore, I never really got the chance to actually pull one to pieces or put it together. And in fact, that was very rarely done, and I don't even remember it actually being done, even though. We took it up mountains, and, and that's the reason for it, because you can carry it up a mountain quite easily if you've got it stripped down into six, uh, six or eight, uh, twelve or eight pieces. So you were acting uh, largely as a signal, a scaly back, as they would have been called at the time. You were carrying a fair amount of weight then, I'm guessing. There's another good thing, because with the artillery in Burma, in that case, no, we had no problems, because, of course, you had to have a... Uh, what they call those a quad to actually tow the gun. I mean, we didn't pull we didn't pull the gun personally, so it was necessarily to have transport. And because there was transport, then there was uh, another small vehicle attached to the gun called a limber. Now the limber is the one that carries the ammunition. Now once you've got all these together, of course, you've got to get the gunners. So uh, they had a quad, what was named a quad. This is an RA vehicle where the gunners are actually transported with the gun and that will sometimes tow the gun. So you've got the gunners in the quad with the gun behind you and the ammunition behind that. So it was uh, quite a trial, really. It's a big logistical thing. Let's take you back. How did you get to Burma? Yes, that's an interesting story because it was a long, long journey. At the time that I was actually drafted into the army 
was at the time, just as the Japanese started to uh, invade the places. And uh, it was uh, 1942. Now, the Japanese had already started uh, raising hell in the Pacific. Here is the motion picture record released by the United States Navy of the havoc wrought by the Japs' sneak sky and sea raid on Pearl Harbor, America's mid-Pacific naval bastion. On December 7, 1941, Japan, like its infamous Axis partners, struck first and declared war afterwards. And, uh, of course, w when it came time for uh, us to go into action, when you're ready to go, you don't know where you're going. You all say, we're going to go, we're going to go off now to get a, to a unit, which, of course, you don't know where the unit's going, and so much secrecy, you didn't know anything at all about it. And there was all sorts of uh, guesses and uh, remarks about people, where we were going and what we were going to do. And it wasn't until we were on the boat leaving Liverpool that we actually found out we were off to India and Burma. And what was your thought at that stage? How much did you know about where you were going to? Uh, what do you mean, geographically? Geographically, but also about the action that was going to be happening there. Oh, well, we... The, the, yes, because the Japanese were raising hell, weren't they, out there? And we knew that uh, we were going to have to tackle them. We didn't know what part of the area in the Pacific we were going to, of course. And then, But the reason, first of all, was you have to get to India, and because it's a different climate altogether, you had the training then to get accustomed to the actual climate, the jungle, because all your uniform is changed. I mean, sweating out in the sun and learning all the problems about jungle warfare and the fact of disease and problems like that. We had to be very aware of uh, cholera and uh, insect bites. Malaria was another thing. And we were taking tablets to fight malaria uh, even in India, before we went off to Burma. When uh, we'd finished our training in India, this was in Pune, where we've, where we've been training. Now, Pune is on the west side of India. Therefore, we had all the way across India to go, and we went across India by train, all the way up to Calcutta. It took us quite a few days travelling by train, yeah, on the Indian Railway, we changed many drivers and on the way. And, of course, we had lots of stops for various reasons. It took us quite a few days. But once we got there into Burma, then our next occupation was that we decided they were sending us into Arakan because the Japanese at that time had decided to make attacks on the Arakan area. What were your first impressions? We talked about the heat, we talked about the insects, we, we talked about malaria and things like that. Also, the equipment that we presumably look after the equipment is vastly different in the jungle to how it would be if you were fighting in Europe. Well, the, the, of course, the one thing that's completely different, mosquito nets, because you couldn't... Uh, uh, during a period when mosquitoes were very lively, you had to put up your mosquito net and there were regulations. After sundown, you were not allowed to wear shorts, or you, you, you had to roll your sleeves down. 
because the, mos- uh, the mosquitoes were terrible at about that time at the night when they were very active. And uh, this was always a, r- a regulation. You had to be careful about ser- certain things like that. But also, you had to be w- worry about the insects. And two of the most serious ones, of course, or brands, were uh, snakes and scorpions. And you have to watch out because they get into your boots at night and do well, all sorts of things. Yeah, that was it. the first thing you did when you got up in the morning, if you'd survived from night, <laughs> you got hold of your boot, turned it upside down and give it a good shake just to make sure there's no foreign mess in your <laughs> So for a boy from Lancashire suddenly arriving into the mix, let alone the fighting, and we'll come to that, but just surviving and being in that environment must have been very different for you. Well, it, it was because I saw you, you, you were with a new band of fellows, but you soon got uh, accustomed to them, friendly with them, and obviously picked out the best friends that you were near. But that mainly um, was due to the fact of what position you were in, in the battery, because if each battery had different groups doing different jobs, therefore you would have uh, some mates that were m- more close to you all the time. You got to know everyone in the battery, the whole people, the sergeants and sergeant major and everybody. But if you, uh, the, the actual part of the, the battery that you were in service with, of course, you became very friendly, even though you were friendly with all, all of them, really. But it's a, re- it's, a, it's a second family, isn't it, when you're that close to people? Like yeah, yeah. So... You were you were there? You arrived in Burma. You're set up. What was the action like? Were the Japanese shelling you regularly? Was it living with that all the time? That was the uh, the biggest problem. We were shelled every night without fail. And uh, you could be sure we used to set. Oh, come on, say set your watch. We used to set our watches almost. Because I don't know why it was the favourite time. Maybe uh, it's because of the actual areas that we were in the jungle. But the Japanese always used to, they used to shell us through the day, but not as much as they did at night. And I think that was what they called nuisance shelling. We used to call it nuisance shelling too, because we used to do the same thing. As long as you're shelling people throughout the night, they're not going to get much sleep, are they? So it breaks them down in sort of uh, the sort of the, the resistance and everything yeah. else. Outside of the the action itself, what were the living conditions like for you? In camp, it, it wasn't too bad. Was, and first of all, Carlisle and uh, Edinburgh. I was sending reports home to my mother. I said, "Oh, you know, this, I've got some lovely rice pudding today, but it wasn't quite as good as yours." <laughs> <laughs> Keep mum sweet. That's important. <laughs> Did you have anything in the way of entertainment? Did Ensa? Uh, the, the entertainment, the live entertainment, come as far as Burma or not? Well, it did, but I I never saw any of it. Be, um, because um, there was uh, a few people went out there entertaining. There was Vera Lynn and other places. She never came to our, our unit. She told me a very interesting story a few years ago about uh, being in the jungle, and she left a picture in one of the camps, and many, many years later, some other people came across that picture was still stapled to a tree or pinned to a tree in the Burma jungle. Incredible. She was very impressed by that. Moving on from the entertainment, the 14th Army, of which you were part, were led by General Sir William Slim. What were your thoughts on him as a leader? 
Oh, he was brilliant. And uh, we, we, we seemed to do, have good progress on the slim. But uh, my other general was in the one in charge of the division that I was in was uh, Major General Festings. And uh, he was a wartime soldier or a permanent soldier. I think his family were soldiers as well, right? Going, dating back many years. You mentioned a few moments ago the letters home to your mum about the rice pudding. Did I understand it right that you wrote letters from your first day in the army all the way through until your very last day in the army? Is that correct? I did, from the very first day. And uh, they, uh, as a result of that, when I sent them home, my my father, he was quite astute, really, and he had a bit of education, and he, uh, he was quite sensible. And he said uh, that he was saving all... He said to me... On, in a letter, sending it home after I'd sent a few, I'm saving all your letters so that you'll be able to read them and reminisce afterwards when you get back home. Now, I, I thought very little about that. I knew he'd done that and saved the letters. When the, my parents died, they both died at the same year, actually, 880. When I was clearing out the place... I came across the letters. I'd forgotten. I'd never even thought about them since because I had uh, moved on and I was living in London, not in Lancashire. So, and I used to visit them. But, of course, uh, not being in touch every day, those everyday things were missed. And uh, it, I never realised about the letters, although I guessed he must have had them somewhere. And when I found them, every letter... I'd been pushed through a little hole in the corner on a long string, and the long string was about 12 inches long. <laughs> so 40 years on from when you wrote them in 1980, you had the chance to reread them again. What were your thoughts when you read the letters you'd written all those years before? When I did that, because I said my parents had died, I came across the letters, amongst other things, and I started to read them. And I thought, oh, yeah, like my father had said, you'll be interested to read these when you, later on. And when I started to read them, uh, I'd had a good memory about the war at that particular time. But when I started to read them, they became so interesting to me. I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to write these out. What I did, I started to edit them. By that, I mean, there were so many things in the letters about family matters. You know, somebody getting married or somebody having a baby or uh, who was doing what, where and everything. So as I started to edit the letters, all the actual personal details that were of little value to anyone else, I just left them out. But I started to write up this story of my life actually in Burma. And it transpired that uh, of these, I finished up with uh, 440 letters that actually produced was the prediction of a, a book, which I later sent away, and, and it, I did have it uh, approved, and it was printed. It was called The Forgotten Army. What did it mean to you to sit all those years later when you finally saw a copy of the book and knew that your experiences were out there for others to read? What did that mean to you? Uh, it was uh, amazing. Uh, the, the interesting thing, that I think, slightly different probably to... Many other books, the fact that I'm an artist, uh, in fact, I trained as an artist. 
and that's how I went. I went from art school into the army. So whilst I was in throughout the war, I was painting whenever I could. Uh, I preferred watercolour painting because it's the oil paintings wouldn't have been very satisfactory moving about in the jungle. You could just start something and somebody say, come on, well, the Japanese have retreated, we're moving. So you'd have to pack everything up immediately. And having a watercolour, and also it was much easier. You could just get the paints set it sorted out and make take the pictures. And uh, so I did quite a lot of sketching. And uh, the, it was the results of these that were actually uh, illustrated the book that I had. We'll come back to that artwork in a second. Those original letters of yours are now stored as part of the Royal Artillery Museum at Lark Hill on Salisbury Plain. What does that mean to, to you to know that those letters are still being used for reference and research? Well, that's inter very interesting to me because uh, they probably have other bits of material. But what they have there, they have an artillery man's history from the very first day he joined the army to the very last. Now, if you think about this, I, I must have been writing, uh, uh, these letters must have been about at least two a week, often three, because apart from the letters that I'm sending here, I was writing other letters. But there was a fairly large, my mother had a large family, sisters and brothers, and I was writing to all these people as well. So the amount of letters, it was actually 440 recorded in the book, but I think there must have been one and a half times as much again as that. You touched on the artwork, you touched on the paintings, watercolours as opposed to oil, but photography became a thing for you as well. I'm just envisaging this. Tell us, you're in Burma, you're in these austere conditions fighting a war, but you managed to to start processing and printing your own photos, didn't you? Well, uh, there was a regulation in the, when you're in action, or during this war anyway, and I think it was also applied to the First World War. <clears throat> you were not allowed to take a camera into the front line. This was in case you were overrun by the enemy and they had proof of uh, many of the secrets that uh, they could find out from the details of the photographs. So it was the same in Burma, and I was only dependent on the sketches I was doing and sending home. And as the Japanese were being, uh, you know, evacuated, routed from Burma, and they were moving down from North Burma down to Rangoon, time went on and they were being expelled. Um, news came around to them, well, if anyone has a camera, yeah, we'll allow you to use it now. So immediately I wrote off and said, uh, look, send out the camera. But I'd been using a plate camera. This is one of the more difficult types of cameras to use in warfare, really. To re use a roll film camera is a much easier and simpler job. You just put the film in. When we talk about plate, that's glass plates, isn't it, which presumably could shatter and break. And Oh, the, yes, they were. They uh, it was a, a plate, uh, a plate. What is known as a plate camera? To the size of the plates, two and a half inches and three and a half inches. So they sent me out the material, but the camera, which I still have to this day, and uh, they sent me some negatives. They're old glass negatives. Yet it was difficult to get hold of film negatives for the actual plate uh, for the camera. 
One of the other things was, if you had these out there, what was the, going to be the results? So they also st- sent me out chemicals because I'd also been processing uh, chemicals before I was interested in photography, having been interested in photography. And my father had taught me a lot because he was an amateur photographer. He's won one or two prizes in local exhibitions and things. And uh, I learnt that from a very early age all the interesting features of uh, developing and printing from uh, cameras at that time because, uh, I mean, the Leica was only just sort of coming up and there were very expensive films of that, uh, cameras of that nature. So and roll film cameras too um, were, um, they, they were quite popular as a roll film camera, but the plate camera is distinct because you could really get an accurate picture and you can focus it to the actual finest detail or, uh, or operate it much, much better. So that was an advantage. What did your oppos, what did your comrades think of you doing these these paintings and the photos and everything else? Oh, they didn't take much notice, really. And I don't think they understood the whole situation, really. The, the big problem was that I wanted to know how the actual photographs were going. And as soon as the camera came out, and they sent me some chemicals to actually process the chemicals. How was I going to do that? Actually, they would, in, in Burma, when you are fighting with a unit, with the type of uh, the artillery units I was, even infantry people, they, you always have a two-man slit trench guarding the, guarding the whole area. So I was in a two-man slit trench with another man, now, when I needed to develop the prints, I would go to tarpaulin and put it over the top of the slit trench and develop the prints in, inside the, the actual slit trench. All those slit tra- all the negatives were processed in the dark under uh, a tarpaulin in the Burma jungle. So no red light, you couldn't see what you were doing, and also, presumably, trying to keep the temperature of the chemical steady must have been... No, oh, that was terrible. It was necessary to use a thermometer... And uh, it, that was a big problem because the slightest variation in temperature can vary the length of development and now how it's been exposed. And you had to be very careful not to make get any light in. If I want to re- talk about one occasion when uh, I'd had t- taken some negative, I could only, the, the, the plates for the camera would only hold six negatives. So that was the limit. Once you'd taken six negatives, you you were stuck. And you either had to take them out and process them to load another six. Or even if you took a couple of negatives, then you might want to process those so you'd wait and get down night time and process them. And uh, there was one particular night time uh, and uh, you had to choose your time very carefully and I'd said to my the, my friend who was my pal in the slit trench, I said, look, I'm, I'm going to develop some negatives tonight. Cover me over with the tarpaulin. And uh, he said, OK. So everything looked peaceful and quiet. So I settled down inside and I was halfway through developing and some negatives. Suddenly the Japanese opened up. Uh, shells were flying everywhere. And he came rushing to the side 
And I shouted, God, don't you turn that tarpaulin back because if there'd been a flash or an explosion whilst he was looking underneath, I said, you're going to find somewhere else. So I had to carry on developing the negatives whilst the shells were dropping around and he scurried off to join the mother trench somewhere else. Oh my goodness, that's that's an incredible story. That's that's remarkable. How long did you serve in Burma for in total? Uh, we arrived in Burma in uh, March 1944, and I served in Burma right until the we got the Japanese out of Burma. Or that's not quite true. They were still fighting in Burma, but because of my unit and what I was uh, being trained for. As we'd been trained as an assault regiment, and now an assault regiment are the ones that go in first, unfortunately. And, of course, that's a terrible ordeal, and that's what we had trained for. And that's why we had these small guns, because of them being very transportable. As the war was uh, improving for our conditions in Burma, and the Japanese were slowly being kicked down south, went down as far as Rangoon and further out, they decided that my unit then had better regroup and they, we came out of Burma, went back to Pune to retrain because we were then going to regroup and land on the Japanese mainland. Wow. And it was whilst we were training in, in Burma and in, uh, in India Preparing, you know, for this new landing, I thought, well, not many of us are going to come out of this. We knew what that situation was. And at that time, of course, suddenly the news came around. They've dropped the atomic bomb. Good evening from the White House in Washington. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. Well, that was a great relief. Although there was no immediate ceasefire of everything because the Japanese weren't convinced that this was the end of the war, we, knew, we really knew that uh, at least... But we, our lives had been saved by this atomic bomb. At the stage when the uh, ceasefire was announced, General Sir William Slim issued a famous note to, to the troops to talk about how well you'd fought and how the 14th Army had done itself proud. How did you hear about that? What What was the first you knew it's over? Uh, well, we had radio. You see, and being a radio man, being a unit that had radios, we, we could usually tune our radios in to... Uh, to um, the uh, uh, radio stations, even in India as well, and we could get, we used to get news that way, as well as by letter, but of course, the the news, I can remember that I was just, uh, I think I was changing places at one stage, and I think I was laying on the ground, and suddenly, uh, well, this was just a few days after the atomic bomb had been dropped, and I'm just laying on the ground, and suddenly some guys started running riots all around the place, saying, oh, the Japs have surrendered. And uh, goodness, so that was a great relief. And how long was it then before you were finally able to travel back 
Well, because I was uh, uh, the army has very strange ways of uh, getting people out of the army, and initially at that time, because the uh, Britain was in a sorry state, they were letting the people out first of all, even if they hadn't been in too long, if they were essential workmen, builders, and. Uh, people producing things, uh, the, the, the men that had actually uh, workshops and joiners and things like that, they were all released early on. Now, but I was an artist, so I, I was a long way back. And uh, because of that, and I still had time to serve, uh, I was sent out to Singapore and Malaya. So for you, the war wasn't over to quote that thing that's released? I was... It, I was happy about it in a way because uh, once the war was over and you felt safer, I was seeing a bit more of the world. Absolutely, and somebody else was paying you. His Majesty was paying. You eventually did come back. You demobbed. Why did you choose the Isle of Man to uh, to come and live on eventually? <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm a photographic historian amongst other things, and uh, I had after the war. I started collecting material related to photography, cinematography, and uh, stereoscopes and things like that. And this was whilst I was living uh, living in London. I was freelance uh, designer in London with one or two clients that I was working for, doing artwork. So this was an opportunity. If I when I went out to see my clients. Very often I would be passing uh, antique stores or shops where they had uh, anything that was second-hand stuff. And it was from this area that I amassed such a huge collection of material of everything, right from the very first days of photography right up until the, the present day at that time. And uh, this was all being stored in my <coughs> home in... Uh, Kingston on Thames in London, and it just grew and grew and grew, and uh, finally, when uh, as time was getting on, I thought, well, I'm going to be retiring shortly, or I, or I will try to retire. I looked for a place at Norton Museum, <clears throat> and I tried several places in the world. I, I wouldn't like to name them all. New Zealand was one. We went to New Zealand. I, I almost set up the photography. That museum in in uh, north of Auckland, but eventually the Isle of Man. The reason that that's uh, I don't know whether you call it fortunate or what. But <laughs> it was a very strange situation because of my I'd amassed this large collection of historic material, and uh, a lot of friends of mine who were collecting this type of, of, of material, they were just specialising in certain items. One might just be roll film cameras, another might be images, uh, certain types of images, and uh, magic lanterns, lantern slides. But I was collecting everything because I was, you know, so interested in the whole history. And uh, I had been doing lectures around the place. I'd even been abroad lecturing, and I went to America lecturing on the history of photography. Uh, to George Eastman House, which is the home of Kodak. How it came to be that, that I finally did find somewhere, 
my wife uh, was uh, I was this was in in Kingston where I, I live. My wife said, "I'm just going to pop out doing some shopping." So I said, "Okay, off you go." So <laughs> she disappeared shopping. I don't know what I was doing at the time, but uh, but she came back in, and when she came back in, I just said to her, "Lillian," I said, "You must sit down." She says, well, what, what for? I said, well, let's sit down. I said, I booked a holiday. <laughs> I'd been studying the paper while she was out shopping, and I'd seen this advertisement for a holiday place in the Isle of Man. I was very familiar with the Isle of Man, but I'd never been. So I thought, this sounds interesting. But I hadn't the faintest hope or thought about a, a museum. So obviously, I booked this holiday, came over. And the minute I came over, I, I, my car, of course, I was driving the car, and stayed at this place, driving out, I drove down to Port Erin. And in Port Erin, there was a huge shop that has, was actually a jeweller's shop. And when I looked at this, it for sale, it said on the notice. So I thought I'd make some inquiries. So I said to Lillian, look, that place, that would make a museum. So I'd make some inquiries. And... As the phrase goes, to cut a long story short, I just said, went ahead and made all sorts of details, made inquiries with the government about opening a museum, because at that particular time, uh, you you couldn't come over and do a job that a manxman could do. Uh, if it was a professional job, like a doctor or, or a curate or a dentist or something of that nature, then you could get get permission. But otherwise, if you were going to take the occupation away from a manxman, you couldn't you couldn't come over. So I just made inquiries. Oh, yes, you can come and open the museum. I said, right, this is it. And made inquiries about the place and started negotiations then to buy it. And off we, over we came. I think this was in 77. We were over in the next year. So you didn't mess around with that one? Huge year for you last year, your hundredth birthday, and you did that. There was a party for your government house, wasn't there? What was that like? It, 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 that was strange because I knew that somebody was arranging a birthday for me, but due to the Burma Star Association, which has been, uh, uh, it was closing down at that time. Anyway, the actual Burma Star itself, but all my friends. Uh, we'd regularly had meetings, and as my birthday was coming along, a, a very good friend of mine, living up in Honkan, had uh, said, look, we're arranging a party, and you can go up to my place, and uh, we'll have a party at my house. Now, this was all a facade, as far as I can make out, because in the end, they must have got in touch with the governor, told the governor that I was a 100, and instead of going to this private house with the large garden, we stopped at the someone. Uh, we were driving up, and you had to go past the governor's house to get to this place at Honkan. We stopped, and the, the person who was taking me up there said, "Oh, wait a minute! I've got to call in here." So, oh, right. so I sat in the car, and then they came out. The governor came out. Goodness, the party was here, not not in the house, uh, but in the government house. What a lovely way to spend a 100th birthday. You're a member of the Burma Star Association, uh, now known as the Burma Star Memorial Fund. 
does that go any way toward making up for the Burma veterans being for so long effectively the forgotten army? Well, it's always been understood and it's continued to be understood because uh, there's so much about the European war that was reported and not the Burma war in Burma. Now, my brother, he was actually fighting in Europe. He was landed on D-Day. He was a, a veteran landing on D-Day on the beach, one of the first landings. And unfortunately, he was wounded on, on the beach on that particular landing. He, he didn't spend much uh, half the day in there, I think, before he was evacuated. But apart from that, I was writing to him, as many other people, and then when the actual decision for the end of the European war, when Hitler and everything else was, uh, the Germans decided to capitulate, then uh, my brother wrote to me, he said, oh, look, he said, there's all sorts of celebrations going on around here. He says, but nobody's thinking about you out there. And that, he actually wrote that in a letter. That must have really brought it home to you mm. as well at that stage. Because we were still fighting. And that went on for a long time and could have gone on yeah. for a lot longer. Well, I don't know about that. It was at least two months anyway. And as I say, if it hadn't been for the atomic bomb, would have gone on longer. Last year, after celebrating your 100th birthday, you represented Burma veterans at the Cenotaph in London at oh. Remembrance Parade. What was that like to do? That was very interesting. I was going to say being a Londoner, but I'm not a Londoner. I'm from Lancashire. But as I finished up my days in the army... Then I was uh, I went to London because of the reasons for the jobs that I was going to do as a designer in advertising, and therefore uh, I spent my life then on, uh, in uh, Kingston on Thames, the outskirts of London, and so I was uh, travelling in and out to London. I got very familiar with London, and uh, that was uh, that was a second home to me. In fact, I consider myself that I've had three different homes. All of them have been very well placed and all of them I've enjoyed every one. My first was when I was a child and in, in up, going up to the war in Lancashire and learning all I did learn there. From then after the war, it was essential that I had to go where the, my type of work was necessary or, or better to do, and that was London. And then from London... I came to the Isle of Man and I've been here ever since. So it's three distinct journeys in my life. And we're here today in your lovely home, overlooking the beautiful sea and skies. It started raining a little bit now, but uh, at Port Erin here on the Isle of Man, when you reflect on all that you went through 80 years ago, what are your thoughts about what you went through at that time? Thinking back about some of the things that happened, you always go back, uh, or at least I do anyway, to both the very good incidents and the very bad ones. And the bad ones are, are easy to remember, or so are the good ones. And the, the ones in Burma, there were three or four occasions in Burma when, uh, you know, it was really, uh, we were in a really serious situation. And I uh, often, or on the, these three occasions, I remember distinctly what they were. And I thought, well, you know, I don't know whether I'm going to get out of this. And as you look back now, do you consider the effort that, and the, the, the 
the cost in in your in lives, everything else, to be worthwhile? You look back all these eighty years. I don't. I I I have been lucky. You see, so many people. I mean, I could just have easily easily died. I didn't didn't want to think about that. But of course, so many people that I know in Burma that that uh, never survived, and uh, you know that. They were all part of the situation that has improved or tried to improve the world as it was at that time. And just a last question for you, James. If you, tomorrow, were to walk out into Port Heron, go for a walk, and I know you're keen on walking still, and you bumped into the 18-year-old version of yourself, what, what would you say to him? What advice would you give 18-year-old James? I'd say do it all again exactly as you do, because so many things I've tried to... Uh, look after myself and I think that that's the main thing both food wise occupation and although I must say this this is be interesting and it's in my book as well because I started smoking at a very early age long before I left secondary school I think I was must have been 12 or so and it was a friend it's always the situation. A friend, he's smoke. He's older than me. He started smoking, giving me cigarettes. So that was the beginning. And then uh, I got up until the uh, after the war. I was smoking through the smoking through the war, and we were getting issued with free cigarettes in India. And uh, I realised, I think, well, this is not. Everyone else then was saying, oh, you shouldn't smoke, or or they were saying that even though there were so many smokers about. So I thought, no, I'll try to give up. I, mean, I think I made a couple of attempts before I finally did and uh, never looked back on that side of it, really. And food as well. I've always been careful to, to try and eat the right things. I think, you know, look after myself in that way. James, it's been an absolute pleasure and a real honour to meet you. Thank you for talking to us today. Thank you. It's very, very nice meeting you.